3: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those
2: emerging.
0: The following podcast contains content of a graphic violent nature and is not suitable for children.
2: It's one of those um, rare cases where you have a a three-year-old girl that disappears on the 12th of January 1970 and 16 and a half months later a young person comes forward, states that he's responsible for her disappearance and subsequent homicide and we take it to the court. There's an argument in relation to the legality of the confession and that's uh, overruled by Justice Hume at the Supreme Court and it, we couldn't progress any further.
3: Some of you might recognise the name and voice of this episode's guest. It's retired New South Wales Police Detective Sergeant Damien Loon, who featured on Headley Thomas's extraordinary podcast, The Teacher's Pet. Damien doggedly investigated the 1982 disappearance of Sydney mum Lynette Dawson for years, bringing the case to two coronial inquests. Lynette's former husband, Chris Dawson, was charged with her murder in 2018 and is awaiting trial. Damien has worked big, hard cases. He was one of the first officers on the scene at the Lint Cafe siege in Sydney in 2014, where a lone gunman held hostage 10 customers and eight employees over 16 hours. Damien features again in another major podcast that's gripped listeners' attention worldwide, just like The Teacher's Pet did. It's the excellent BBC Sounds multi-episode podcast, Fairy Meadow, about three-year-old Cheryl Grimmer's haunting disappearance from Fairy Meadow Beach in Wollongong in 1970. And if you haven't already, Listen to our episode with Ricky Nash, Cheryl's big brother, who was 7 years old at the time she went missing and heartbreakingly has never stopped blaming himself for what happened to her. Damien and a man called Frank Sambatale, who you'll also hear us speak with on a separate episode, were the detectives who in 2016 took another look at Cheryl's disappearance. Little did they know the events that would unfold. It was Damien who called Ricky Nash in 2016 to tell him there'd been a breakthrough in his sister Cheryl's murder. It was the first time Ricky had ever heard a police officer use the word murder rather than disappearance or abduction. It was a defining moment. Cheryl's case had gone nowhere for more than 45 years at that point. While combing through dusty boxes of documents in storage, Damien found a confession made in 1971 by a then 17-year-old. It contained compelling information they believed only the person who abducted Cheryl would know. This set in motion events that would see that person, who we can only identify as Mercury, charged with Cheryl's murder in 2017. Nothing had ever happened with the confession before. The youth was, unbelievably to Damien, never charged. The confession was referenced fleetingly in the 2011 inquest into Cheryl's disappearance and that 25 investigators had been unable to locate Mercury. Locating Mercury took Damien and Frank San Vitale just three hours. But in 2019, a judge ruled the confession of Mercury, as a then 17-year-old could not be used as evidence after all, because there was no parent, adult or lawyer present with him when he made his statement. This law wasn't in place in 1971 when Mercury confessed, but the judge said it should be applied retrospectively. Without this confession, there wasn't enough evidence to proceed with the trial and Mercury walked free again. Damien recently retired after 35 years of distinguished service. He said he knew it was time to call it a day. He has no doubts about who abducted and murdered little Cheryl and still holds hope that this man will face court. A listener warning, there's some distressing content discussed in this episode.
0: A lot of our listeners will know your name very well, as do we, from the Teacher's Pet podcast and the the Lynne Dawson case. Can you believe it?
2: Yeah, well, look, it's one of those things that I've always said, never never not answer a telephone because you never know what the next day is going to bring. But um, that was an old job back from 97 and I was given that brief to uh, to look at and um, it just snowballed from there. And eventually in 2015, the... uh, unsolved homicide squad took the brief from me and um, I did some more work on it obviously and then I charged him um, after years of fighting with the DPP to have him indicted um, which they wouldn't do Um, they've somehow managed to twist that around and and find an indictment for him so he's before I believe the courts at this stage I don't know when it is scheduled Um, there was some issues about a stay application and also I think a high court challenge it may be. I don't know. um,
0: Well, someone had to sit down and read, I think it was how many thousands of pages of transcripts (laughs) from that podcast. I know that had to happen. So uh, yeah, that was part of it. There's been a lot of hearings, but I believe so far so good. It's progressing.
2: I believe so. I think May was the uh, date for a trial. So, well, I'm just waiting to hear.
0: Yeah, I bet you are. And, When you found out that there was going to be a podcast about the Cheryl Grimmer case, what did you think?
2: (laughs) These matters should never die. You know what I mean? Um, They should never go away. And I think by having some uh, public uh, input and outcry about what happened to Cheryl uh, is probably a good thing. Many, many years ago, as a young constable, you know, we were told not to talk to the media and say very brief statements. And, you know, I don't think that really, really works for me because I've always found the media to be on my side sometimes, sometimes good and bad, but. Um, more or less have always assisted me in um, things I've needed to do. And um, I'm not surprised at Cheryl because it's very much like the Madeleine McCann issue over in London. And this is no different from a little girl that disappears in Australia back in the 70s. And uh, through what Ricky's gone through and the family has gone through and unfortunately, uh, like the Dawson brief, both parents have gone to their grave not knowing what happened to their daughter.
0: Yeah, and it's it's a shame that it's requiring a sort of a campaign of shame, honestly, to get some progress in both cases.
2: Yeah, look, I've said this from day one, you know, and when I was a young detective, um, I, you know, I was given a fairly big range to do things outside the square. I've always believed in that. And I've always believed that, the, you know, the, the media and the community are the police and the police are the community. So we work together and um, we try and get it, put our heads together because sometimes it's just impossible for a a single officer or just maybe a couple of officers to do all the work that we're required to do. It's it's very time-consuming and there is a lot of work. But, um, yeah, I wasn't surprised. And um, I know that there was a a podcast from the BBC, I believe, Mm -hmm. um, about this as well. But um, if it assists the family or assists in the offender being brought to justice, then I'm all for it,
0: yeah, the BBC yeah. podcast, Fairy Meadow, is stunning. It's, mm. it's, it's such a great piece of work and, I mean, it just highlights a story that's incredible, li- like literally incredible. If you read it as a script, if it was a TV show, you'd think, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. That, that mm. could never happen. A family could never be let down so many times over so many decades by so many different institutions within the legal system. Now, I asked this question of Frank and I'm going to ask it of you now. Have you ever seen anything like it in your life?
2: No. No, it's one of those um, rare cases where you have uh, a three-year-old girl that disappears on the 12th of January 1970 and 16 and a half months later uh, a young person comes forward with crucial information, uh, states that he's responsible for her disappearance and subsequent homicide and told in fine detail mm. and we take it to the court. There's an argument in relation to the legality of the confession and that's uh, overruled by Justice Hume at the foire de at the Supreme Court and it, uh, I, I agreed with the Crown at the time that we couldn't progress any further if that evidence was inadmissible.
0: Did and you? That's, that's fascinating because I, I, w- I was shocked, I am shocked, that the DPP would... Encourage an arrest if that was the only piece of evidence strong enough to proceed with.
2: Well, we we arrested him, and and I, I obtained uh, within the police force legal um, legal assistance in relation to um, our brief of evidence, mm-hmm. and we we're given the green light to proceed with the arrest. So. The DPP basically were then forced to take on the brief because we've presented the brief to the to the Crown and there's it's gone through the, the subsequent lower court proceedings. He was um committed to stand trial um, to the Supreme Court for that offence. And it passed all the ticked all the boxes in relation to um um the evidence that we had obtained that there was enough evidence there that a, a jury would be satisfied upon conviction.
0: Hmm. But you weren't shocked that there wasn't enough evidence without the confession?
2: Well, that's the really, the evidence that we obtained through that confession was overwhelming, I believe. Yeah. And for that record of interview to be not admitted into evidence, that's the crux of our investigation was based solely on that record of interview. Yeah. So all the uh, evidence we'd gathered through the, um, the eight pages of this uh, young person, this person called who am I called Mercury, uh, his um, his confession. We, we set out to um, and, bo- and don't forget, we you know were outside the box and we didn't have our, our, our blinkers on. We mm-hmm. we set out to either a prove that he's telling the truth or b that he's lying.
1: Yeah.
2: And we found that everything he told us was true because there was evidence, obviously, that the child had disappeared. Mm. Certain people had seen certain things that day. Um, but even when we went over to Nottingham to interview, interview Mavis Goodyear and, and her daughter, that was overwhelmingly uh, the evidence obtained from that just that single interview was uh, put put our, our person Mercury at the scene.
3: And that was the um, the wife and, and um, child of Peter Goodyear who was well known to be a witness at the time of Cheryl's disappearance.
2: Well, he was the allegedly only person that saw a person carry young um, Cheryl, or we don't know if it was Cheryl, carried a young person away towards the car park uh, back in that afternoon of um, 12th of January 1970. So was it Cheryl? We don't know. Because on that particular day, uh, others left the beach in a hurry. And as far as much during our initial investigation, at a latter stage towards the, um, the arrest, a, a male came forward and said, well, he was at the beach 49 years ago to that day. And he'd never told police, but he picked up his young fair headed daughter and walked across the car park with her in her arms.
0: Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Frank was telling us about the the fact the what's it called, a southerly buster.
2: Yes. Yeah. Common, yeah. quite common down that area on the Illawarra.
0: Yeah. So it was chaos. It just happened. Another another one of these terrible parts of the the coincidences. It's that that Swiss cheese um, theory, isn't it? That's like unfortunately. The way things lined up in this case it lined up perfectly for this potentially for this offender to have gotten away with it twice
2: you know i was lost for words but um the, the hardest part is in trying to explain that to the family and a legal technicality and they just don't understand unfortunately no, um don't. how do you console a family like that who had been fairly thick with us throughout the whole inquiry and we we're We were very honest with them, we was straightforward. Um, It's no use sugarcoating something terrible that happened. Uh, If if I'm going to get assistance from the family, then I always believe being straight up and and, um, and honest with them from the beginning because otherwise you won't have that rapport or trust with them.
3: Did you see the legal technicality coming? Like, you know, that that real bloody twist that happened because at the time of the confession, Mercury's... Confession, you did not need an appropriate adult in the room at that time and then you have to.
2: Well, that that's right. And you, it wasn't enacted until six years later that came into legislation about a, a support person being present for a person under the age of 18 years. So in that era, it, and we canvassed this, is that the confession was taken uh, rightly mm-hmm. and it was recorded correctly and um, I didn't see that coming at all until it was raised in the voir dire at the Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, and Mercury at no time has suggested and his legal team at no time have suggested that anything appropriate occurred even in the room other than that. Like there's no suggestion that the confession was coerced or he was intimidated or anything like that. It's very much the technicality that there was no appropriate adult in the
2: room. Yeah, and that's one of the aspects of that confession as well. I think it's also the mental state of this uh, mercury. But, um, no, as far as we were concerned, and that was canvassed during our... um, ..when we put in for the file to go to our legal services department for their comment, and it was um, basically told us, no, that was fine, it was was above board and it was done correctly in that era. So for this to be... Then you know, well, retrospectively, applied many years later. Well, that that's a disappointment. But um, it's a shock. No. Yeah. yeah,
0: it's a great shock. So, mm-hmm. what do you do after that, as as a as a copper? I mean, um, we know that Frank Frank retired, or he left he left on mental health grounds, and this was a very big part of that decision. And he's obviously still struggling with that. And um, But you continued on in the service for some time. You're retired now though, right?
2: Yes, I retired in July last year.
0: Oh, okay. So still quite new to retirement. How are you going? <laughs> How are you going with that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not used to it, to yeah. be honest with you. I was just pretending I'm on long service leave. For, <laughs> in the- um, because it's quite bizarre because I, I, where I retired at I was the, um, I was sort of the boss of the detectives in the in Virel, Glen Innes, and um, I was the detective sergeant there. so I had a lot of input, a lot of uh, we had a lot of traveling to do, a lot of uh, inquiries. The on- call aspect I don't miss, but um, mm-hmm. uh, it's one day you're getting phone calls at three in the morning and the next day you're not yeah. and it's bizarre.
3: What yeah. was your tipping point, Damien, or what was the reason that you just thought, "Yeah, I'm done"?
2: Well, I'd um, I'd had a bit of an issue. I went to the I was at the Link Cafe siege many years prior to that, and um, it was, that was a terrible day. And for my own reasons, I just took some time out to get my headspace together. Came back, um, and then was offered that opportunity at Wollongong to um, cast some fresh eyes over the Strikeforce Wessel, which is Cheryl Grimman's disappearance. And then that fell, fell over eventually back in 2019. And um, so I've been in the cops by that stage about 35 years. So I thought, well, it's time for someone else to take over their own. And, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a hard decision to make, but it has to be made at some point, doesn't it? You, you know, it has. you have to walk away one day.
2: Well, two weeks prior to I'm retiring, I had a murder-suicide while I was working on it. A week before I retired, I was doing the autopsies for both. And you know, a week later, then you're retiring, you're not there anymore. So, and I thought, well, now it's probably time to go now. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but retirement's got to be every bit as difficult as that in some ways because it it's is. A, no, yeah, it's I it. yeah, I loved every minute of it. I
2: loved every minute of it. I was passionate about what I did. I loved working with people. I loved helping people. That was one of my driving forces to be a cop in the first place. Mm. And then suddenly to have all that in front of you, and then suddenly the week after, nothing happens, it's a real. Um, yeah, it's, I didn't. I don't think I transitioned properly into retirement. Um, yeah, maybe if I had done a bit of homework prior, I might be still going. But however, life goes on.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away.
2: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today.
0: Do you have any other cases? Is is Cheryl the one for you like she is for Frank?
2: Look, I think Cheryl's probably the. Uh, at the end of the day, um, I thought the other matter that's before the court was in, very important as well with the family. Lynn I think Dawson. it's all because it's all about the family, as far as I'm concerned, giving them answers and um, trying to give them closure. And I think Cheryl was very, very special because those three boys were very young when yeah. she went missing, and Ricky's bore the brunt of that throughout his life. Mm feeling responsible for her disappearance and and I think he copped a fair bit of you know a fair bit of flack from his particularly his father yeah. which I can gather that happened yeah um but to bring about closure now some days we cannot always always um solve something you know but we can give the family at least a bit of peace um yeah. and, and enclosure and if we can do that then I think I've done my job and I think at some stage when I retired, I think, I think I'm I, at the end of the day, I think I like to think that I um, helped someone along the way. And I think I did. And I, and I yeah. And I think You've Cheryl done so was much. very important.
0: You've done so much, you know, you, you, people like you um, look at things and deal with things. So the rest of us don't have to, can just go about our business mm-hmm. and can ignore things, frankly, you know, and not have to look at ugly things and scary things and, the reality of life and what's actually going on at 3 a.m. So, you know, you've definitely done a service, given so much to the community. Um, And there was a moment in the uh, Teacher's Pet podcast that was just so profound for me. Um, It really helped me, I think, understand the families of missing people. Like in, in this Fairy Meadow podcast, there was that moment that Ricky talks about when you phoned him. That, that first time when he was driving and you said can you pull over please I've got to tell you something do you remember that moment
2: yes I do yes
0: and do you remember what you said to him
2: um, I believe that um, we would identified a suspect and the manner and the cause of a death
0: but do you remember your exact words we' we've, we've found a suspect or a person of interest in in Cheryl's murder yes the significance of course was that he said, what the fuck, I've never thought of it as a murder before.
2: That, that's right. He just thought she, yes, that's right. You know? Um, she and disappeared. That's like yeah.
0: so huge because we just, the rest of us just think, what do you mean? Like at that stage you've been 47 years or something and everybody else is going, what do you mean, Ricky, in our minds? Yeah. And to him that was like a lightning bolt when you said that.
2: And it was, and yeah. I remember his reaction. And uh, as I said, because I've always had this um, um, part of my DNA being a cop was always to be upfront and honest with your victims of crime mm. um, and even offenders sometimes too, um, uh, being honest with them as well, tell them that the outcome they, sh- they should expect, et cetera. But telling Ricky that was difficult to tell him because I, I, as you've as you just recalled that he didn't ever... The Word murder was never mentioned.
3: Did you think, really? like, when you use the word, you'd think, oh, yeah, like, obviously, mm. they are thinking that that's a possibility? Were you kind of shocked by Ricky's reaction?
2: Yeah, look, look probably I was because the fact that I, I probably presumed that he just thought that that's what happened to his sister,
0: yeah. Um, somewhere, along and it the was line, always.
2: Yeah. There was always the headlines back in the 70s was about, you know, this girl's been abducted or whatever, et cetera. So there's never a very good outcome with abductions. Um,
0: and then in Teacher's Pet, the moment when uh, they were describing other members of the Dors- uh, the family, not the Dawson family, Lynn's family. Yes. We're talking about her father's funeral and her mum, that was the moment for her mum. Her mum was looking at the door through the entire ceremony
2: be- she would walk through
0: because she her mum just thought there's no way Lynn would not be here for this her mum yes. thought okay maybe she's this bullshit story that they'd been told that Lynn's run away with a religious group or something and her mum just well, of course you want to believe that i guess and but her mum thought yeah maybe 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 she'd leave her kids maybe she wouldn't call me for years maybe this and that but there's just no way she wouldn't come home for her dad's funeral. And that was the moment, that was the hour, that was the day her mum knew she was never coming back. It was so powerful.
2: And very, very upsetting, no doubt, for the family. Yeah. And, um, you know, all these years later, well, hopefully at some stage, if there's going to be an inquiry into this, uh, into the court, we may have an outcome. I don't know. But
0: it's so frustrating we that we, that you, we, listen to me. So frustrating that um, that you haven't been able to find Lynn's remains. I mean, there are any number of frustrations in these matters, aren't there?
2: Yeah, and that's one of the most difficult aspects of um, these old type cold cases. Mm. Uh, and since I've been um, since I moved from the city out to the out to the bush, I've done a number of cold case reviews as or, or for other regions as well, and. I've come to the conclusion that was certainly there was there wasn't a suspect or it was was going to, it was no um it was it, the coroner found an open finding, and I I sort of went along with the coroner as well because there just wasn't the evidence there to pinpoint or point a finger at somebody. Um, some remains were found and some weren't, and some of these matters are investi- reinvestigated. So you've got to have an open uh, an open book on these cases. You've got to think outside the square, and um, as I said, with the, the grimmer matter that was very important about um, Mavis Goodyear's um, recollection of s- knowing that her husband was outside sitting on the brick wall was very important to us because Mercury states in his record of interview back in 19 on the, in um, May of 19 of 1971 that he saw him all sitting on the wall. Mm.
3: Was it the and one that- in orange shorts? Was that the reference?
2: no there was a male sitting on a on a brick mm-hmm. wall outside the ladies portion mm-hmm. of the changing rooms mm-hmm. and we went to nottingham to interview mavis and a week before that frank and i sat in on a, on a, a day lecture about cognitive uh, interviewing and recalling memories um it's a training day for the detectives of and. Over in Nottingham, they have a, a very passive interview room. You wouldn't know it's an interview room, it's just full of couches. And in the very corner, there's a small camera and a microphone. And uh, I just sat with Mavis in his interview room and Frank was in the other room with the other police from Nottingham, checking the audios, et cetera. And um, basically she went into a very relaxed mode. And I said, well, take yourself back to that time when you're in the showers with your two daughters, you know, in the changing room. And if you can take yourself back to your own childhood, um, basically bessa blocks buildings with an open air portion of the changing rooms. And, you know, if you go back to the old surf club days when I was in a surf that was that's what I like yeah, back in right. those days. Yep. Yep. And um, just just jumped in for a quick cold shower or whatever and off you went. Hmm. And she said, I can recall um, Peter. Being outside, because she, the most telling aspect of this was the evidence that she could smell his cigarette smoke. Ah. Mm. He, he smoked a particular type of cigarettes which she recognised, yeah. and he had to be close to where they were having a shower, yeah. and we're saying it's outside, because the smoke wafted in through this blesser block and through the open air, and she yeah. could smell it. That was really, really important to us, and it was like a light bulb moment when, we, when she said that. And you don't, uh, you don't know until you, until you get these people into that sort of state of mind to take your mind back on it. She closed her eyes and sat back in the chair, and she went, "Oh my goodness, I could smell his cigarette smoke."
0: Wow.
2: And that puts him there because that's evidence. That's that smell. That's something you can't be taken away from you.
0: between that and the bubbler. Yeah. You know, um, there's just some incredible moments from that confession.
2: That water bubbler was a very, very strong point for oh, us as well. It's amazing.
3: What did it feel like? I keep imagining, you know, when you found that confession mm. in that box in the archives. I just think, fuck. Oh, oh sorry.
0: That's <laughs> no, what? that's all right. I kept thinking, do, yeah.
3: wow. Just imagine that feeling. Mm. And Frank described, you know, you'd wave, you'd wave stuff if it was of significance to each other. But what did you think? Like, what was your, your copper gut just saying to you when you found that?
2: Well, I think it was a late Friday afternoon and we'd been working on this brief for quite a few months. And um, mm-hmm. to get you just around the brief, you've got to read everything. And prior to that, it hadn't been transferred electronically onto our investigative system. So Frank and I split up the boxes of evidence and I said, I'll take these boxes, you take those boxes and we'll just get cracking. So every day from seven to five, we're typing away and putting entering a product onto, onto our investigative system mm. and By that stage, I'd read a a fair bit of the brief, and um, it was late Friday afternoon, I think it was. Um, And uh, out comes this record of of interview. I'm turning the page, and I've picked it up and I've read it. Well, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what I was reading. Then I wanted to read as to why that uh, wasn't enacted on, and I read the following, what they called running sheets in those days, where it's an investigative note attached to the to the file. And uh, when I read the aspect about the bubbler, um, what she was wearing when she walked up from the beach, who she was with, where Mr Peter Goodyear was seated, et cetera, et cetera, it was a telling moment then. So I went over to Frank and said, read this. And we just sat there in awe for a long time.
0: Well, listen, we're all just praying that the Mm -hmm. Attorney-General, New South Wales Attorney-General, will see his way clear to... Reversing his decision to not reverse the judge's decision, <laughs> I'm getting myself tangled in
2: knots. We yes, just know he had a he's got a, he can act a special special yeah. power to to uh, to allow that to go to trial. It yeah. wasn't enacted, so I think there is a push now for that to happen. Yeah, I think it, in in the in the light of justice, um, as I said, put it before a jury.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's frustrating. Let's not guess. Let's not no. guess what. We reckon will happen, so so you know I'm not going to bother. No, well let's bother. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, look, Ricky's taking the charge up on this, mm. and um, as I say, it's got it's got to be driven. Mm. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, I thought the investigation was. Um, Thorough investigation for what what we did and mm-hmm. the resources that we had there was only the two of us
3: sounds like it was mm-hmm. like incredible there was a
2: number of there was a number of officers who did some good work over the previous years on that brief mm-hmm. um and which allowed us then to when we got the brief to uh so well we don't have to do that it's been done now which uh gave us a little bit more time to do a few other things but I thought the aspect of interviewing Mavis Goodyear was very, very important, and you, you just don't get the you don't get the the feel and the sense of an interview if you're doing it over via a Zoom meeting or uh, over a telephone. It had to be that I had to go and see her personally. And well, you know, we laughed about it and thought, oh, they're going to send two cops over to two <laughs> yeah. middle-aged two right. middle-aged cops over to London, you know? Yeah. But yeah. I, I and I fought the case and that. Um, and i thought it was very important for the brief. and we went and we eventually went over there and did what we had to do
0: and look what you achieved
2: yeah Brilliant. that was at, at that that mayvis good you interview when you record that That was worth mm. everything going over there for and coming back
0: yeah i will be shocked to the back teeth if this doesn't get um, some movement and mm. some change it's just so well the other you know fairy meadow and and the case is excellent god that confession's unreal
2: yeah, and, and it's it's, uh, and
0: it's terrifying. He's a child sex dist- offender back in the in the community. He's never left the well, community. Well, you know? The whole thing
2: about that interview was that everything that he said was true. Yeah, we couldn't so we detailed could prove a lie. Yeah, oh, even to the aspect where one of the telling aspects of that uh, record of interview, and we reenacted this, by the way, with the um, with we did um, some laser sightings at the old surf club where the um, where the wall had been extended out from where the um, door to the change room was. Now, so we did um, we did some pretty tricky work with our scientific people mm. and we were actually pinpoint where he was seated when he said, I couldn't see them where they were going to, but I, I presume they were going into the entrance to the men's changing room because that's the direction they were headed yeah. because he said because there was a wall blocking my view. So we went back to the original footings of where that wall was God. and we were able to do by laser sighting. Um, in fact, that he was actually telling the truth. You couldn't see the doorway to the change room from where he was seated.
0: Even the crows circling at the place where he said he left the remains and um, his misunderstanding of the geography and misnaming of places. Yes, yes, yes. Unbelievable, isn't
2: it? Yeah.
0: It's so perfect. And for
2: someone to say he's never been there in his life before.
0: And he was there for the walkthrough. It's ridiculous. Yeah, well... Thank you so much.
2: My pleasure, ladies.
3: Thanks to our guest, Damien Loon. If you haven't already, make sure you listen to the excellent BBC podcast, Fairy Meadow. Ricky Nash is pleading with the New South Wales Attorney-General, Mark Speakman, to reverse his decision not to intervene to force the prosecution of the man he believes murdered his sister. The Attorney-General still has the power to bring mercury before the courts again. There's information in our show notes and on how to contact Mr. Speakman to let him know your thoughts. There is also a $1 million reward from New South Wales Police for information about Cheryl's abduction and murder. Thank you to the following patrons. Debbie Esquilant, Soleil Heritage, Anne C, Elizabeth Fitos, Sally Colpoise, and Jasmine Kasicki. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.
1: This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction
2: with the Acast Creator Network. Planning for your next trip?